Uh, again, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Anaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry and threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. 
And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously uh, against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his own work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much for having me here and for um, patiently reading through that long chapter. It's the last chapter in Nehemiah, and um, hopefully as you were sort of like wondering, is this ever going to end? Oh, he keeps going. Okay, okay. Um, You were also sort of reminded of um, some of your what's been covered recently in your series on Malachi. In fact, the uncanny similarities of the issues between the two books is often cited as solid textual evidence that the prophecies of Malachi may very well have taken place during the governorship of Nehemiah, which in turn provides the last biblical historical record we have before the 400-year intertestamental period between the rebuilding of the remnant of God's people in the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus Christ in the new. And you've heard, you probably heard echoes of some of the stuff that you've covered, right? Um, Breaking the Sabbath, desecrating the temple, um, unfaithfulness in marriages, you know, that sort of thing, Um, robbing from God, all of that, you know, you, you hear it there. And so we find here at this threshold of this 400 year gap that Nehemiah ends his account of his time with a kind of glum list of reforms and fixes that he's had to enact. And he didn't have to end the book this way. If he stopped at chapter 12, he could have stopped with the jubilant rededication of the wall that he's been working on and the nation's renewal of their covenant with God. And that would have given a nice shape and symmetry to his book with a nice lift at the end and it would have been a fitting ending to a really great resume of, le- of leadership, right? Instead, he ends with the hair-pulling frustrations of dealing with constant and immediate backsliding, compromise, and worldliness. The repeated refrain that you hear of, remember me, remember me, remember me, God, doesn't sound like, I did it, Lord, I did it, I did it. But more like, I tried, Lord, I tried, doesn't sound like that would be good enough. But capping his account of his governorship in this way makes clear an important point about Nehemiah. It was never about the wall. In our mind's eye, we always associate Nehemiah with the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. 
But it's clear here that the wall is just a symbol or an instrument of a much more profound and fundamental project, that of the restoration and care of worship. Nehemiah is obsessed with restoring God's presence among God's chosen people. If you just look at the first chapter of Nehemiah, there's that beautiful prayer. But it's a priestly prayer, confessing the sins of his people and rededicating them to God's covenant. And even here in this last chapter, Nehemiah's repeated pleas for remembrance is a worshipful one, as if he's laying out his actions as sacrificial offerings. Numbers 10.10 tells us that occasions of worship are memorial in nature. They are to remind us of the bond we have with God. Let's think about this. Worship, at its most basic, is acknowledging or perhaps elevating the worth of something. In that sense, we worship automatically. Every time we turn our attention to something and prioritize it or cherish it or even just let it affect us, we are giving it a measure of worship. It is in our very nature. Thus, the, dem- the thematic prominence of idolatry throughout the Bible. It's going to be a problem for us. But the worship of God is special. God, by his very nature, can never be worshipped enough. We can never esteem him as he deserves. To know him incrementally more is to worship him infinitely more. Our worship can and should be all-consuming and eternal. At the very least, the worship of God is costly, dedicated, and vulnerable. It's not a trivial affair. For the remnant, it was practically treacherous. It wasn't satisfactory to lump Yahweh in with household gods and give him a corner of your house and a makeshift altar. You couldn't conveniently give him whatever spare animal that you had and say a quick prayer. Everyone needed to regularly converge like clockwork in one place with their entire family and the best of their wealth for a day-long ceremony. I bet to their pagan neighbors this seemed like madness and a delicious opportunity because they took advantage of it. And you can see why a wall is needed. The wall tells us that God's worship needs to be protected because it cannot be watered down. It needs to be cordoned off to a sacred space and a sacred time. God's worship is holy. It's set apart. And walls create distinctions, boundaries, exclusions, Think about the middle of this chapter when Nehemiah locks out all the merchants from the Sabbath. At the same time, walls create identity, protection, inclusions. The worship of God is special not only because his merit is immeasurable, but because his love is equally fathomless. He honors those who turn to him, and they are transformed in worship. Quick note of application here. We build walls all the time. We are constantly designing our lives, protecting what's important to us, 
setting up systems and infrastructure. And when we make these executive plans, when we engineer our lives, what's the purpose? Is that purpose ever to protect and nurture our worship of God? Does the importance of God's presence take priority? When we choose where to live, what job to take, what extracurriculars to sign up our kids up for, do we make those calculations prayerfully? What about the, our routines and rituals, our schedules, our diets, our recreation? Do they help us be more faithful or less? Now, it's possible to go too far, to be legalistic about these decisions, and to think that focusing on designing the right life will increase our merit in God's eyes. Nehemiah doesn't make that mistake. He doesn't make an idol of the wall. He understands that in the end, the wall doesn't solve all of his problems. We must also keep this in mind. Now, Brother Andrew Workman has done an excellent job going over in Malachi's disputations how our worship can be compromised and is ultimately fulfilled in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Go and revisit those sermons, and you will find so much of it is relevant to Nehemiah 13. What I want to do here is draw some of those points together and do a quick overview of how Jesus is an answer to Nehemiah's prayer here. First, Jesus is the temple. One cannot help reading this chapter, especially verses 4 through 9, and not recall Matthew 21, when Jesus drives out the merchants and money changers from the temple and calls it, my house. Hebrews 4 and 5 describes Jesus as a great high priest. Jesus himself analogizes himself to the temple in John 2.19, when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. When we take communion... It is in remembrance of his ultimate sacrifice for our sins, his body broken, his blood shed, the unblemished Passover lamb offering. And his dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well reveals that he's not only at the center of worship, but that he recasts it from a physical ritual to a spiritual reality. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The Messiah restores the temple and true worship because he is the locus of that worship. Secondly, Jesus is our Sabbath. In Matthew 12, Jesus declares that something greater than the temple is here. Indeed, that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Back up a few verses and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Hebrews 3 and 4 parses out how Jesus' death and resurrection finally makes possible the promised rest for God's chosen people. That he's actually the restoration of the true Sabbath that was lost in the fall. Hebrews 4.9 So then, 
because of Jesus, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Finally, Jesus is the groom of the church, his chosen people. John the Baptist declares that his joy is now complete because the bridegroom is come. Jesus talks about himself as the bridegroom who will return at any moment's notice. And the book of Revelations crescendos in chapter 19 with a wedding ceremony between the church, the bride, and Jesus, the Lamb. It is this principle that we are now in this profound union with Christ that is now the guiding light for our life now in grace. Look at First and Second Corinthians, and it's clear that everything Paul has to say about worship protocols, about church politics, about sexual politics, about marriage, about ethical living, has as its foundation our new identity as being one, body and soul, with Jesus Christ. Just one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Or do you not know that your, temple is, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Notice that Paul says that we are now the temple of God because we have been resurrected in holiness with Christ. If you accept the salvation that Jesus achieved through his sacrifice on the cross, you're not just given a second chance, a blank slate. After all, what would you do with that second chance or third chance or fourth chance or thousandth chance? Do you think you could do any better than before? No. You would be back to where you were dead in your sin, condemned by your own shortcomings. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Our sins die with Christ's sacrifice, but our lives are now rescued by being bound with his resurrection. Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, this is all very well and good. But we're still kind of in a waiting room for glory, just as Nehemiah and his remnant were. The new Jerusalem has not yet arrived. We have the church, but the new heavens and earth are not here. The wedding feast, only hinted at. We have communion, but... And the final resurrection has not happened yet. In the meantime, as in Nehemiah's time, we have a tendency to dishonor and depreciate our worship. 
we compromise the temple. We undermine the Sabbath. We are unfaithful to our holy commitments. But these are not just oopsies. This is personal. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the Sabbath. Jesus is the groom. Aren't you struck by how intimate Malachi's prophecies are? He starts the book, I have loved you, says the Lord. If then I am a father, where is then my honor? I don't know um, how many of you have seen the movie Wall Street on Gen X. So. Um, but there's a key moment when the protagonist, Bud Fox, gives his boss a piece of insider trading information in order to impress him. But he then realizes that his boss is going to use that information to fire all of the workers that his father is the union rep of. And it's then that Bud realizes the actual cost of the market manipulation and financial ruthlessness that he's been a part of. The personal cost. This is not about being up to snuff. This is about knowing who is worthy. This is about loving the Lord the way he deserves with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You don't honor that relationship and you will lose your sense of self. Notice what happens in the 400 years after this chapter. Even after Nehemiah tried to deworm the pagan influences of the likes of Tobiah and Sanballat, who were constant enemies throughout that entire book, Israel gets conquered at least twice over by foreign powers. The laws of the Sabbath became a Byzantine tangle of technicalities. The leadership becomes corrupt, argumentative, and aloof, indifferent to the suffering exploitation, and anxieties of their people. Should we settle for the same diminished state of affairs? Should we allow our temples to the infiltration of outside influences instead of jealously protecting what is true and right? Should we start to negotiate what we are obligated to do instead of celebrating what we are invited to? Should we nickel and dime ourselves out of opportunities of far-reaching blessings? Should we betray divinely ordained bonds in favor of short-sighted conveniences? In essence, this is what Paul means in Galatians when he says, we turn back to circumcision instead of the gospel. Instead of authentically responding to a clear-eyed gaze of the good news We hood our eyes and mutter about what we're allowed or not allowed to do. We don't focus on the worship of God's presence. We look to see what we can get away with in its shadows. We use religion and theology to give us cover instead of uncovering our new life in Christ. God's presence is made available to us through Jesus. He is our temple, our Sabbath our groom. When we were lost and blind in our oblivion, he remembered us. When we were naked and hapless, he gave us cover and protection. When we tried and failed over and over, he asked that we be forgiven and put his body and blood on the line to make it so. 
let's celebrate our relationship with him. Let's enjoy our rest with him, in him. Let's cherish and honor our worship of him. Let's pray.